ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 7. should be in the vicinity of page 49 if you're looking on in your pew Bibles. And uh, that's those pew Bibles are for you if you haven't, if you don't have a Bible or didn't bring one with you. Uh, you can find the passage that we'll be looking at today on page 49, hopefully, and then into 50. I'm going to read a larger portion than... Uh, we're used to. I'll explain why in just a few minutes. But I'll ask you to give attention to uh, the reading of God's word and then to its proclamation. Find it there, uh, Exodus chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, so you can follow along in your Bibles as I read from mine. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to, to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. It shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all of their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you and up on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The, magi the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you uh, paid good attention to uh, the reading of scripture because for the next few weeks we're going to be attempting to digest larger portions uh, than we typically do. And more than ever, I think these scripture readings are going to be part of the sermon. And uh, we're, we're likely not going to have time to, to work through all of the details in the text. So being exposed to these details through careful reading is going to be super important. Well, we've arrived at, at one of the most well-known and one of the most interesting portions of the book of Exodus, namely the Ten Plagues. And when I was planning this sermon series, I had to decide how I was going to handle this portion. Um, should I preach a sermon on each plague, I wondered? Or, or would taking that much time to go through them all, would that make you all feel like you're under a plague, basically. Um, by the ninth one, you might prefer that the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits rather than be made to listen to another plague sermon. I, I was helped by the observation that if you set aside the tenth and final plague, which is a biggie, and it kind of stands on its own, then you're left with nine. How do you like that math? That's pretty good, eh? And it appears that the narrator presents these nine plagues to us in three groups of three. There, there are a lot of similarities between the three sets. For example, the first in the set, so that would be plague one and four and seven, in, in each of those firsts of the set, Moses presents himself before Pharaoh in the morning. 
And likewise, in the first two of each set, Moses gives a, a, a very clear and ample warning to Pharaoh that the plague is going to come only if he doesn't obey. Um, the plagues come only in the case of his disobedience to the command of God to let his people go. But in the final plague of each set, well, then, that's plague three and six and nine. No warning is given. So it, it seems, you know, the disaster just kind of comes upon the people without any warning. And what the narrator, I think, is communicating here is that there's a real precise order and detail with which the Lord is executing his plan, this great rescue plan. It's not haphazard. He's not calling it in. This is very detailed and, and actually beautiful. And so we should never be in doubt at any point here that the Lord is in total control of this situation. All of this is going totally according to plan. This whole thing is orchestrated by a sovereign, omnipotent God who is meticulous in all of his details. Now, one of the practical benefits of seeing that order and structure is that I feel a lot more confident in my decision to deal with these plagues three at a time. I, I hope that'll work out. And I'm also, just to kind of give you the inside scoop here, I'm also fairly confident about what the point of these passages are, what the point of these plagues are. And that really has nothing to do with how insightful I am. It has everything to do with how clear God's word is. And I'm helped especially by um, verse 5 of chapter 7. I think there, it's a, an interpretive key there. If you could just put your eyes on um, chapter 7, verse 5. God is declaring here his purpose in multiplying these signs and wonders. He says this, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And bring, and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So we, I think we need to understand from that key that all of these plagues are kind of like a prolonged demonstration of the God with which we all have to do. We, like the Egyptians and like Israel, we, we ought to come away from these great events knowing who the Lord is. And knowing how he operates. And knowing, um, just kind of related to that, in terms of our own response, what would constitute the proper response to such a God who's operating in such a way. So in the time that we have remaining, I want to draw four observations from these first three plagues. Again, uh, this will be a little different. I, I can't deal with all of the questions that you might have and all of the little details. Instead, I'm going to try to be content to ju just draw out four big observations from these first three plagues related to who God is and how he operates, what he does, and how human beings ought to respond in light of these things. And I'll give these to you as we go along. The first observation we might call salvation through striking. 
salvation through striking. Just go back to that key verse that I mentioned a minute ago, chapter 7, verse 5. Actually, back up to verse 4. I want to show you something here. Verse 4 says, I'll read these together. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I want you to think carefully about the structure of those two verses. Think about how the Lord is presenting this as he declares uh, these truths in these two verses. And I think I'll give you a, a visual that will help you see the structure. I think the best way to visualize this is with a new menu item that I, someone was recently telling me about. You know, we're in the land of the garbage plate, so uh, there's a good chance that you'll be able to appreciate another kind of food perversion. This, this guy was telling me about the latest artery-clogging abomination known to man. And it's, it's a hamburger, so picture that. You've got like, a, let's say, a half-pound beef patty right at the center. But for the buns, you've got full-out grilled cheese sandwiches on both ends. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's something else, isn't it? Two, two, so you got two slices of bread at the top, um, two slices of bread at the bottom, and they're, they're fused together with melted cheese. And that's how you eat your hamburger patty. I'm not sure what they've called it yet, but one thing that's definitely getting called is the ambulance. <laughs> okay, so we've already noticed the meat at the center of these two verses, the, that's the purpose of the, these plagues, which is to have everyone know that he is the Lord. Okay, that's, that's right there at the center. That's the meat. That's the, the good stuff. But I, now I want you to notice the, the double layers on either side of that. With his hand, the Lord God is going to accomplish two different Two different things simultaneously. And these two slices are kind of going to be fused together. One, he's going to bring his people Israel out of Egypt. This is going to be a great rescue mission. And two, he's going to execute great acts of judgment against Egypt. And he's going to accomplish both of these things, salvation for his people, so, um, judgment on his enemies by the same events. By the same events. He's, he's going to save one party and he's going to strike the other party. And the most common word that we use to describe what's about to go down is plague. Right? You're quite familiar, I'm sure, with that uh, term. But throughout these chapters, the narrator actually uses quite a few different words to describe the same thing. We've seen some of this already. Sometimes they're called signs and wonders, these things that are about to happen. Sometimes they're called acts of judgment. And one of the more common Hebrew words and expressions 
that's employed here to describe the plagues means literally a blow or a strike. To, to experience a plague in this light means to basically get pummeled in the face with a flurry from the fists of God. It's a blow from God. It's a strike. It's a divine strike. And God strikes, you understand, because of his holy wrath and because of his righteous indignation. Don't forget that for 400 years, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have dealt ruthlessly with the people of Israel. They've, they've enslaved them, and then they've steadily increased their burdens to the point where it's just unbearable. But now, the full measure of the wrath of God against these Egyptian evildoers is about to be poured out on them. They're about to be stricken. And it's ultimately going to result in death. And notice in the first plague here that the Lord commands Moses and Aaron to strike the Nile with the staff. Same thing is, is repeated with the gnats. So the, uh, but back in the first, the, the same staff that had turned into a serpent and swallowed the other snakes, that staff is now a very tangible symbol of the powerful workings of God. You have to believe that Pharaoh, if he's in his right mind, maybe he won't let on to this, but he's cringing every time, every time that staff comes up. And Moses and Aaron are commanded to take that staff and to strike, there's that word, all of the waters of Egypt, the Nile, the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and the result is that they will turn to blood. Blood, of course, is a symbol of of life, but only, only when it's contained in the right vessels, right? When blood's contained in the body, then blood can be a symbol of life. But when it's found outside of the body, well, then it takes on the opposite meaning, doesn't it? It becomes a symbol of death. Think about it. Blood coursing through your veins, that's good. That's, that's life. Blood on the streets, that's bad. For the Egyptians, the Nile River is the source of their life for all intents and purposes, that, that everything comes down to the Nile. That, that's no exaggeration. It's the center of their agriculture. It's the center of their economy. It's the source of their food. You know, the protein-rich fish that teem in those waters and the water itself. But now God has struck the Nile and all of its water has turned to blood. All of it becomes undrinkable. Uh, the rivers stink, and all of the fish died. It's difficult for fish to thrive in a sea of blood. And so the, they die, and the rivers then stink even more. And this, friends, is the stench of death. That's what you would be smelling as you walked about Egypt in those days, the stench of death, and it's the result of judgment. This is the striking of God. This first plague, I think, is a really good preview of the judgment that is going to come upon Egypt. Okay, there's, there's hints here about um, blood and death that is coming in the ultimate plague. 
But I don't want you to just merely think of this as historical and for them, because this is actually also a very good preview of the judgment that will one day come upon all of God's enemies. And we have a much, much more, uh, what I call, proximate preview of, of this reality in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation being the last book of the Bible. And as such, we're given just a sneak peek into what is happening in these last days and what is coming. And um, really, it's preview, previewing for us ultimate realities that were the same kind of realities that we're talking about in Exodus. Salvation through striking. God rescuing his people who are beaten and oppressed and suffering. God's rescuing his people while at the same time he pours out his wrath upon their oppressors. And so in Revelation chapter 16, we read of seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out. And the number seven in this book, you know, is uh, very symbolic. It re represents fullness or completeness. So here we're talking about the, the completeness of God's wrath that is going to be poured out upon his enemies. And we'll pick up the action in verse 3 of Revelation 16. It says, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything live, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Friends, it's, it's very important that we recognize that we are all, by nature, God's enemies. And therefore, we are all, by nature, objects of his wrath and his displeasure. God is righteous. He's perfectly right to pour out his wrath upon us because we're sinners. We're rebels. We failed to acknowledge that the Lord is God. And, and uh, in our rebellion against God and in our mistreatment of others, we are justly deserving of death, even of eternal judgment in a place the Bible describes as hell. And I bring this all up, um, not just to, you know, not to be a downer, not to depress you all, but I, I'm, it's actually the opposite of this. If you can admit that about yourself, if you can admit that you're a sinner, that you're a rebel by nature, and that you are justly deserving of God's wrath, then you are in a perfect position, it seems to me, to hear the incredibly good news of the gospel, which is that God, your enemy, your judge, has put forth his very son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners like you and me, to die in our place as our substitute. Understand this, that the stroke, the striking of judgment that was supposed to fall on us 
fell on Christ instead. The Bible says that he was stricken for the transgression of his people. And by his wounds, like the, like the wound that was created when that spear was jammed in his side and out of his side poured water and blood, by those wounds we are healed. And if you're saved today, and, and hear me rightly, please, everybody, you can be saved today. And let me do one better than that. You must be saved today. If you are saved today, it's only because your salvation has come only through that striking. And let's observe a, a second feature of these plagues, namely the impotence of idols. Try not to misspell that. Don't say the importance of idols. Write the impotence of idols. And this is the observation that through these, the multiplication of these signs and these wonders, these acts of judgment, God intends that all would know that he is the Lord. Right? That's our interpretive key. We need to know that he is the Lord and that he alone is the Lord. This is an exclusive kind of a claim. We need to know that he alone is God and that beside him there is no other. We, we started to see this last week, I think, in the account of the snakes and the adders. You know, the, the snake, you'll recall, was a major symbol of Egyptian divinity, um, always a kind of a cobra on the headdress as the centerpiece. And yet God's staff that was turned into a snake swallowed up all of the Egyptian snakes. The, the contest between the, all of the Egyptian gods and the one true and living God, it's, it's going to intensify over these next uh, number of plagues, just like that initial showdown. And just like that initial snow showdown between the snakes, it's going to be crystal clear who the winner is. Through these acts of judgment, the idols of Egypt are going to be shown to be completely impotent. And let me just show you uh, a few things along these lines. In verse 15, the Lord instructs Moses to go to meet Pharaoh in the morning. And uh, it's important that he went then because that was the time that he was going out to the water. That is the Nile. Now, it's possible that like the Egyptian princess that we saw a couple of chapters ago, it's possible that Pharaoh is going down there to bathe. But this is, he's the king. He doesn't have to bathe in such Spartan conditions. And so many scholars believe that it's much more likely that Pharaoh was going down in the morning to the Nile for the purposes of worship. There, there were thousands of gods in the Egyptian pantheon for, that Pharaoh needed to worship. But none more, more important than Osiris, the god of the Nile. And as we noted earlier, the Nile is central to the Egyptian civilization. And so it was essential for Egyptians to engage in the kind of regular rituals that would appease this Osiris. And in popular 
um, Egyptian religious thought, the Nile River was said to be coursing through Osiris's bloodstream, if you can believe it or not. So what you see what's setting up here, right? God, through Moses, is going to take on Osiris on his own turf in front of the king who is presently engaged in false worship of him. To, to, to turn all of this, all of this little small g God's precious water, life-giving water, to turn it all into blood and stink, really has the effect of showing him to be completely powerless. That any kind of power and authority that the Egyptians would give to this God are, are just empty. They're meaningless. This, this, this God isn't even, can't even do the first thing about his own area of expertise. Something very similar is taking place in the second plague. Heket, H-E-Q-E-T, Heket was a, a goddess and she was responsible for fertility or so it was thought. And it's, it's interesting to know that Heket was depicted as having the head of a frog. So you might see this in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian art. Depictions of Heket show her with the head of a frog. And as a result, um, frogs are sacred in, in Egypt. If the Nile is like the Ganges in terms of its uh, cultural and religious importance, then the frog is the sacred cow. And I hope that it's, it's becoming immediately apparent to you how what the Lord did here in the second plague was a total takedown of Heket. She, she must have like completely glitched out because frog fertility went through the roof. And soon there were frogs everywhere, not just in the Nile, but everywhere. They, they had come up into the houses and, and bedrooms. Imagine that, kids, trying to fall asleep at night and you got a frog hopping across your face. Ladies would open up their ovens and five frogs would hop out. What do you call 12 dozen frogs in a kneading bowl? Gross. <laughs> uh, think about it. Th think about it. Like you can't eat anything. Some of you have a hard time eating something if it falls to the floor for more than five seconds. What about if a frog crosses your bread? and is, is worked into your dough. That's a surefire way to get warts, let me tell you that. And then, we haven't even spoken about the noise. You know, it's kind of nice when you live out in the country to hear a couple of frogs kind of out far away, croaking, just that, that faint croaking in the background, very beautiful, very nice, very calming. It must have been deafening to hear a, a plague of frogs croaking it out in chorus. It's actually a little bit comical. I hope you see the humor in, in these plagues. It's comical for God's people. It would be terrible to be an enemy of God to experience this. But what's even louder, here's my point, what's even louder than the croaking is the theological statement which is basically 
you know, get wrecked, Heket. The Lord is God. The Lord alone is God. As for the third plague, you know, the dust becoming gnats, we're not really sure precisely what insects are in mind here, but honestly, it doesn't really make much difference because you know that all of these are terrible and annoying, and some of the smallest insects can be the most painful. There's nothing worse than when you're camping, trying to sleep, and maybe you don't have a frog crawling over your face, but you hear that mosquito buzzing right in your ear, and then you try to get rid of it, and you end up smacking yourself silly. Uh, the only thing worse than that is when the mosquito bites you, and then a million of its friends bites you. Many of us love going to the beach in Ocean City, New Jersey, uh, around Labor Day, a little bit after for a Bible conference, and we love hanging out on the beach, except when the wind shifts and it brings all of these biting flies or mosquitoes or whatever they are. You, trust me, you can't bear it for more than five minutes. You find an excuse to go back to your room. Now imagine that multiplied by, on a huge scale and over an extended period of time. And on top of all of this pain and annoyance and itchiness are all of the religious implications. An old uh, historian named Herodotus who lived in the fifth century BC and he uh, visited a lot of Egyptian temples uh, he wrote um, describing the priests, uh, the Egyptian priests who were involved in religious worship. These priests, he said, were very scrupulous about hygiene. And, and it's so that their worship wouldn't be hindered, it, so that it would be acceptable before all of these gods. And so Herodotus said that these priests would bathe morning and evening in cold water. And not only that, but they would shave their entire bodies every other day to avoid lice because the presence of any kind of lice or any kind of little insect like that would be dishonoring to their gods. This is what the historian wrote. But under the third plague, you understand this plague of gnats, there is no way to avoid these things. And so there is no way to engage in the worship of these gods. The Lord, you understand what's happening here? The Lord is stymieing all of these idols at every turn. And then consider Pharaoh's sorcerers and his magicians, the practitioners of the secret arts. We've, see, we've already seen how these guys are in touch with the demonic, and by the power of the prince of the air, they're able to reproduce some of these plagues. You know, we have a lot of questions about that. Um, and, and more as we read this. But whatever fresh water remained, Pharaoh got these guys working on duplicating the water to blood trick. And sure enough, they're able to do it. And they're also able to make more frogs come up out of the Nile. But this shouldn't trouble us. Okay, this is... This is not posing a serious threat and challenge to the power of God by the power of the devil. That's not what's going on here. I hope you can see that 
all of their efforts, and they must have been strenuous efforts, all of those efforts fall far short. In fact, it's actually very comical because all they're able to do is make the problem worse. There, there's more blood as a result of their secret arts. There's more frogs. It's the ultimate own goal, right? It's, 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 uh, it's just totally owning yourself. They're, these, these guys, at the end of the day, are completely powerless to eradicate the plagues, which is what they really should have focused on. And maybe they did, but they realized they, they've got nothing. They can't get rid of these problems. The, the Lord is permitting their power only insofar as it makes matters worse. And then eventually, and not even eventually, actually pretty quickly, by the end of the third plague, they're, they're at the end of their power. You know, they, they couldn't reproduce the gnat trick. Uh, they tapped out. And look what they say to Pharaoh in verse 19 of chapter 8. They say, this is the finger of God. And that's a pretty strong testimony to the triumph of God over every false god, small g, in every idol. Even the bad guys are saying it's God. Now, in case you're tempted to dismiss Egypt's belief in a, you know, a pantheon of gods and think about these as the superstitions of a primitive people, you can dismiss all of that, I'm sure, but I hope you realize that if you today are putting your hope and your trust in anything or anyone other than the one true and living God, then you too are an idolater. And you, you might not wake up every morning to, to worship Osiris or bow down to a frog goddess named Heket, but you're certainly giving your life in service to something. And really, it can be anything. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. We can, we can crank anything out and make it an idol. We can turn anything into a god. Ethnic identity, gender ideology, the environment, the government, the American dream, your career, your family, your money, you name it, human beings have genuflected before it. And if you're not worshiping the one true and living God, I guarantee you're worshiping something. You're a person that was made to worship, and you will worship. The question is, what are you worshiping? And at the, at the end of the day, here's what I guarantee you. Whatever it is that you're giving yourself in service to is going to be shown to be completely impotent. It's going to amount to nothing, even less than nothing. I want you today to know for certain that Yahweh is the Lord, and beside him there is no other. Here's a third observation, a third thing that these plagues reveal about God, and that is his readiness to relent his readiness to relent. I'll make this point briefly because it's not, I'll grant that it's not a major emphasis in the text and it's not exactly prominent. It requires a little bit of reading between the lines, but, but simply observe all of the chances that the Lord gives to Pharaoh to respond. 
the, the many times that he is called to obey. Each time that Moses and Aaron come before him, they repeat God's command. Let my people go that they may worship me and serve me. This, this is a grace that Pharaoh was given so many opportunities to obey. And then the first two plagues, as I mentioned earlier, in each set of three, um, they're contingent. And by that I mean that they're only, these plagues are only going to come upon Pharaoh and the people if he refuses to listen. If he chooses to obey, no plague. It's over. You cert- I, I hope you understand this, because you certainly don't get the picture throughout this that the Lord is just chomping at the bit to unleash the full fury of his wrath against Pharaoh. It's not that at all. He desires, rather, that Pharaoh would repent. And, and if he did, if he would, the Lord would be ready to relent. And so he gives the king opportunity after opportunity to obey. Verse 25 indicates that between the first and the second plague, there, there's a, a full week that's passed. That's a lot of time for reflection, sober reflection. That's a lot of time for repentance. This is a generous amount of time for Pharaoh to come to his senses and to reconsider the disastrous path that he has chosen up to this point. And it kind of looks like Pharaoh's been brought low by this second plague. Do you see that? He's fed up with the frogs. And the text, I think, hints at he, he's kind of okay with the plagues when they're outside of his walls and they're affecting just the people. He's got a big problem with plagues when they're hopping around his bed. Anyway, it looks like uh, he's, he's been brought low. His magi- magicians are no help. In fact, they, they added to the problem. And so in chapter 8, verse 8, he calls Moses and Aaron and asks them, get this, asks them to pray for him. And we think, oh, man, this is, this is good. This didn't take very long at all. Pharaoh says, unbelievably, he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And furthermore, he promises to let the people go. He makes a deal with the Lord that if, if, if he would relent and relieve the fresh pressure from the frogs, then, then Pharaoh would release the people. Again, you're thinking, whoa, this is a major development. This hasn't taken very long. Uh, Pharaoh's done resisting. So, so Moses cries out to the Lord for him. You see that in verse 12? That's interesting. That's the same kind of crying out that the people of Israel did under their burdens. It's the kind of crying out that the Lord heard and the Lord responded to. But now Moses is crying out on behalf of Pharaoh, the bad guy. And what does the Lord do? He hears and he responds. Maybe not exactly in the way that Pharaoh had hoped. I think Pharaoh had hoped that all of these frogs would disappear. Instead, they just died on the spot and they had to be gathered up and piled up their stinking corpses. Must have been nasty, but it was over. The larger point 
should not be missed here, and that is that the Lord showed mercy. As we come to know the Lord through these plagues, it's very important that we would know that he is a God of justice. He's, he's a righteous judge. He, he's a God who feels uh, wrath towards his enemies every day, as Psalm 711 says. But we also need to understand that something that's also very important about our God, which is that he takes no delight in the wicked. And he is compassionate, and he's, he's a kind God. He is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And this is good news to you if you are someone here who has resisted God up to this point in your life. That means that he, God has given you opportunity after opportunity to come to the end of yourself, to bow your knee, to repent of your sins, and to obey him, to follow him. And even here today, you're pre presented with one more opportunity. He, I want you today to hear, maybe you've never heard this before in this way, but hear again his gracious invitation. He says, come, let us reason together. Let's, let's strike a deal. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though your sins be as red as the Nile River, they shall be as wool. I'm here to tell you that if you today would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He will relent. He will have mercy. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Respond in repentance and faith. Don't harden your heart. It's very dangerous. It's disastrous. And that's the fourth and final lesson that we learn from these parables. Let me give this to you quickly, please. I want you to see the hardness of the human heart. Really, this is the consistent theme of the narrative. At the, at the end of each of these sections of, of these two chapters, whether it's the snakes or the water to blood or frogs or the gnats, you name it, either at the end of the section or at the beginning or in some cases both, there's a note about Pharaoh hardening his heart. A hard heart is one that has become heavy. That's what the Hebrew word here literally means. It, it's become uh, unfeeling and unresponsive and impenetrable. And this is a progressive sort of condition, kind of like the hardening of one's arteries after eating a garbage plate or a hamburger with grilled cheese bun. Uh, the name's yet to be determined. But notice how, notice how scripture presents heart hardening as totally unreasonable and totally irrational. Look, for example, at verse 23. This is in the face of total disaster. The Nile and every other body of water is turned to blood. Dead fish stinking everywhere. And in that context, in that terrible environment, we read that Pharaoh turned and went into his house. And he did not take even this to heart. And the emphasis there, even this, like not even a national disaster 
is affecting this man's heart. And the text is presenting that to us as insane, completely unreasonable. And neither do people harden their heart out of ignorance. I hope you understand that. People that harden their heart aren't able to say, I I just don't know. No, rather, this is a willful decision. And it's, it's one that's made in, despite all of the facts to the contrary. This is clearly seen in verses 8 and following. Where Pharaoh asked Moses and uh, Aaron to pray for him. We, we talked about this just a second ago. And we saw it from there from the Lord's perspective. Um, the Lord heard and showed mercy. But now we have to look at that same situation from Pharaoh's perspective. Moses agrees to pray for him, and then he gives Pharaoh the privilege of picking the date and time that God is going to act to end the plague. That's that's an incredible grace. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow, and you're thinking, Pharaoh, are you crazy? Why didn't you say, like, right now, this second? But he says, tomorrow, and the effect of that is that now we have what's a, a controlled experiment that's set up, if you will, okay? So that, so that what's set up is that if the hopping stops tomorrow, then that's going to be undisputable evidence of the fact that it, this is the work of God to do this. This is a result of the prayer to God. It's not good. You, you, when you set the date and time, you rule out any kind of coincidence. And that's precisely what happened, isn't it? And therefore, Pharaoh knows for certain that this plague began and ended by the finger of God. At one point in his life, he could say, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. But he can't say that anymore, can he? The Lord has clearly revealed himself by his word and by his works. So Pharaoh, another way of putting this, is without excuse. And yet we read in verse 15 that when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, relief from the pain of the plague, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron. He, he reneges on this vow that he had made from his foxhole to let the people go. And we, we, could, we could really criticize Pharaoh here, but let's, let's shift to ourselves. Let me ask you, have you ever done anything like that before? Perhaps you're in dire straits. You're, you're desperate in your circumstances. You're, you're needing relief from whatever it is that you're under. And you cry out to the Lord. And you made promises to the Lord about what you would do if God would, would rescue you. No doubt it had something to do with taking him seriously and obeying his commands. And then what happened in your life is that God did rescue you. And as soon as you got the relief, you totally forgot about him. You, you went on with your life. You, you forgot about your vows. And friend, if that is true of you, That is evidence of a hard heart. You're not acting in ignorance. You're acting in high-handed rebellion against the God who 
you cried out to and who heard you. And if you want to, I'm saying that that is a dangerous, dangerous state to be in. And if you want to see just how dangerous it is, um, keep tracking with us. Just keep watching. I want you to pay attention as we work through these plagues to the state of Pharaoh's heart before the Lord. And notice how he gets further and further entrenched in that to a place where it's impossible for him to turn. May it not be so with us. Again, I say today, if the Lord is calling you, do not harden your heart against him. Respond in repentance and faith and humility. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Recall uh, here again at the end, our third observation, this God, know this about this God, he is merciful. He's ready to relent. He takes no delight in your death and your destruction. He's ready to receive you and to save you. And so we sometimes sing this. It's an invitation. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Arise and come to Jesus. And if you would like someone to show you the way to the Savior, We'd invite you to just come to this front pew at the end of the service, and there's going to be folks there that would love to pray with you and to help you come to know the Lord. Know this God who saves through striking. Know this God who brings the idols and the small g gods of this world to nothing, who renders every idol impotent. This is a God full of mercy, ready to relent. He's he's a God who, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Friends, behold your God. Amen? Amen.